From sick children in a Texas detention center. Outbreaks of scabies, shingles, and chicken pox were spreading among children who were being held in cramped cells. To a billionaire's alleged pedophile ring. Epstein paid underage girls as young as 14 to massage him. We are paralyzed by the news that addicts us. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone, and we offer options to paralysis. We hear about conspiracy theorists who live in the optimism of their fantasy. At the end of the day, the bad guys are going to go to jail, and the president is not a multiply accused sex offender himself, but a true and noble hero. And climate scientists for whom knowing too much is a burden. I veer on the side of grief right now as I'm talking to you. I can feel this compression in my chest. And some wisdom on the art of doing nothing after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is out. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, we came up for air after the eviction series and the money show to review the stories we hadn't covered, among them the malignant neglect of the most vulnerable of children at the migrant detention center in Clint, Texas, and the chronicle of an alleged sordid, squalid rape committed by our commander-in-chief. And we started to feel a little numb. And that obviously isn't good for any of us or for the country, which requires its citizens to stay engaged. So we thought we'd take up the issue of numbness, paralysis, and how to treat it. First, with a little bit of good news that relates to our theme, because this case was finally liberated from the grip of a long paralysis, allowing justice to begin its work. He has rubbed elbows with the likes of President Trump and President Clinton and Prince Andrew. And today, the feds charged a multimillionaire, Jeffrey Epstein, with running a network for the rape of underage girls. Epstein first faced other sex crime charges back in 2006 and 2007. At the time, he could have faced life in prison for allegations with underage girls. But the prosecutor in the case, Alex Acosta, now President Trump's labor secretary, struck a more lenient deal. Epstein served just 13 months in a county jail for those charges. We have got breaking news. Alexander Acosta is resigning. The labor secretary just announcing... As the indictments were announced and the details emerged, one group readied itself for what New York Magazine writer and editor Max Reed calls the fulfillment of a message board prophecy, one ardently embraced by a group of far-right conspiracy theorists. But as they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I'm talking about QAnon, which is a sort of infamous, sprawling conspiracy theory born out of message boards like 4chan and social networks like Facebook that uh, has held for the last several years that there is a high-level ring of pedophiles among the governmental, political, academic, uh, financial elite, specifically among the democratic elite. For those of us not in those circles, we first saw it when that guy came in to shoot up a pizza shop, which was apparently fingered as a pedophile front. Yeah, that was the uh, the Pizzagate era, the roiling QAnon conspiracy. 
And a key component of their theory is that Donald Trump is, in fact, conducting a secret investigation into these rings and that he is eventually going to reveal the investigation and ship a bunch of the Democrats off to Guantanamo. His partner in this investigation, as it happens, again, according to conspiracy theory, is the late JFK Jr., who is said to have faked his death 20 years ago and will someday reveal himself alongside Trump in order to bring justice to these offenders. Before the Epstein indictments came down, one faction of QAnon people seemed to believe that on the 4th of July, Donald Trump and JFK Jr. would finally make their move? Yeah. On July 4th, maybe at the big rally that Trump was giving, there would be some kind of announcement that it would finally be the moment when Nancy Pelosi was let off in handcuffs. Some people thought it was July 5th. Obviously, as it turned out, no. Boy, they couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't until July 6th that a really high-level member of the financial elite was arrested by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York City for taking part in a sex trafficking ring that seemed to implicate a huge number of politicians, financial elites, academics, even entertainers. So how did the QAnon message boards react? For me, what was interesting is that what they were saying tracked so closely with the story of Epstein, which we actually have known a fair amount about for the last 15 or so years. You know, the charges that were brought against him this weekend are similar to the ones that were brought against him 10 years ago. The headline of your piece in New York Magazine is, so was QAnon right? <laughs> and, and I think you argue it was right in the general contours that there's a culture of impunity and there was sex trafficking going on. If you squint your eyes, they did get it right. But then there's all these details that really they got wrong, such as, for example, John F. Kennedy Jr. has not appeared. For example, they have imagined this to be some awful, satanic, occult sex practice when it seems to kind of have been almost a side business to potentially some kind of money laundering business, some Ponzi scheming that Epstein is doing. It's still kind of unclear exactly how he made his money. One of the biggest points on which they're wrong is the idea that Donald Trump was the hero the reporting suggests he's an erstwhile friend of Epstein who reportedly broke with him over some business deal gone sour. So how has QAnon dealt with this mixed Trump connection to Epstein? Well, they seem to have convinced themselves that he was sort of undercover for the last 20 plus years, that he was a kind of Donnie Brasco of the Eyes Wide Shut set. The way conspiracy theorists tend to operate is they take any evidence and they figure out a way to make that evidence work in their system, mm -hmm. that there can't possibly be anything that would contradict the big machine that they've got going. You know, we have a rough theme for this episode of On the Media, <laughs> and it has to do with the numbing effect that comes from being constantly hammered over the head. And I wonder, how do you think QAnon fits into this, if at all? The QAnon paranoid conspiracy starts to emerge as actually a somewhat more optimistic vision of the world. From all we can tell and from all that's been reported, Epstein is a story of an awful criminal who was allowed to escape justice for many, many years based on his powerful connections. Whereas the QAnon story is one where there are elites working in the name of truth and righteousness. It's one in which at the end of the day, the bad guys are going to go to jail and the president is not a multiply accused sex offender himself, but a true and noble hero. Is it your view then that conspiracy theories can be soothing? Soothing is a good word. I don't know that conspiracy theories 
can make people happy necessarily. But I think that they allow people to structure the information that they see around them, the things they read, the way the world works, in such a way that it begins to make sense. Bringing order to a chaotic world. Exactly. And, you know, if you look at this particular situation, it can be infuriating to think that Jeffrey Epstein skated off on a sweetheart plea deal for 10 years of his life, despite most of the crimes that he allegedly committed having been known. If you look at that, it can be very difficult if you believe in truth and justice in the American way to understand how and why that was allowed to happen. And QAnon gives you a structure to understand it. It allows you to say, well, look, I know that he's you know been in this mansion for the last 10 years enjoying his life. But in fact, JFK Jr. and Donald Trump are working very hard to put him in jail and also Nancy Pelosi and all these other people. You know, it might still make you angry, but you have a sense of order to the world. Now, I know you're not licensed, but where does that leave the rest of us? <laughs> the most cynical thing to say would be that we all kind of have grand narratives about mm-hmm. the way the world works. It used to be the case, for better and often for worse, that every city had one, maybe two or three newspapers that told you the way the world worked. And you trusted your democratically elected representatives to represent you to the world and to represent the world to you. And now we have this sort of multiplicity of institutions, companies, digital platforms claiming to do more or less the same thing. And that kind of splintering of reality is strange. At best, it makes you feel weird. At worst, it makes you kind of go crazy. That system of achieving consensus through deliberation and discussion is a sort of peacetime project, and it feels very much like we're at war right now. I think it has a lot to do with the way the internet works and the way we've allowed social platforms to take over. But in the case of something like QAnon, like those are people who have entered a full kind of wartime footing or a full kind of wartime attitude toward the world, that they have shut off the possibility of deliberation, of achieving consensus with people who disagree with them. But they're comfortable there. I mean, it takes a lot of risk and vulnerability to say, I might be wrong, convince me, let's talk this through. You know, compromise requires you to give stuff up. When you're at war, you have one objective, and that's to win. And it's, it is comforting. Max, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Max Reed is a senior editor for New York Magazine. Next up, climate scientists cope with the crippling anxiety that comes from tracking global warming. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, Mother Jones ran a cover story titled, It's the End of the World as They Know It. In it, Washington Bureau Chief David Korn dives into the anguished hearts of climate scientists, who are now reconsidering that clinically stiff upper lip that has long been the mark of the brotherhood and the expanding sisterhood of scientists. David, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Talk me through the range of emotions described by these scientists. And why don't you start with 
gloom or maybe fear. Or doom or anxiety <laughs> or depression. These are all scientists who study some aspect of climate change. But they all seem to have some commonality. They believe that the world at large is not giving it the notice it deserves. Now, there is outright denialism that we see coming from the political right. It's government inaction. And it's also the fact that just people around them, even loved ones and friends, do not seem to embrace the urgency the way they do in relationship to the data they observe. You suggest they're a little bit like uh, Sarah Connor from the Terminator franchise, who knows of a looming catastrophe but has to struggle in a world that doesn't comprehend what's coming and largely ignores the warnings of those who do. What did he just say? He said there's a storm coming in. I know. In the Terminator movies, Sarah Connor's knowledge is indeed secret. No one else knows about it. In this situation, tens of millions of us know about it to some extent. But in general, they're looking at the rest of the world and saying, you just don't get it. One scientist talked to me about how he envisions what's going on by saying the human race often does not do what it ought to do to survive. And isn't that weird? Isn't that funny? Isn't that unusual? So he's intellectualizing it rather than feeling pain about it. Others who feel, I think, more of that climate research grief are talking about it, but they're doing so within a community where talking about emotions and feelings has never been placed at a high premium. Right. I just wonder... Are they all just simply being frank, or are some of them being strategic? And I ask this question because the journal Issues in Science and Technology did a study that found that much of the coverage of climate science in the last couple of years tends to begin and end with the worst-case scenario in a rather unscientific way. There's a kind of debate within science communicators about whether to oversell the possible worst-case scenarios or, or whether that turns people off, that it just seems such a overwhelming problem that there's nothing that can be done about it. But the scientists that I spoke to for this article on Mother Jones basically thought that by speaking of their own feelings, they could better connect with a lay audience, that they wouldn't just be automatons, but saying, no, this is kind of real. You spoke to paleontologist Jacqueline Gill, and she told you she swings more towards anger than depression. She told us recently she's noticed a shift in the dialogue, and she's worried that so much focus on anxiety promotes feelings of helplessness. She does these Ask Me Anything things on Reddit, and recently, mm -hmm. for the first time, the majority were asking, will the world really end by 2030? Are we doomed? We went from no one's listening to total apocalypse. And she wasn't crazy about the title of the Mother Jones piece either. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily the end of the world, she said. We can minimize harm. That whatever the intention of much of this public discussion is, and I don't think she was directing it solely at scientists, but at commentators and journalists too, that this is an overcorrection. 
Uh, Brooke, you've been covering the media for a little while now. Mm, more years than I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that the one thing it's very good at is going from zero to 10 and back again, mm-hmm. or zero to 60. It's very hard, I think, to have more nuanced conversations, especially if you talk about getting people's attention. There's so much going on right now, and elbowing your way into a national conversation about something important, you know, if you're in the media, you try to think about, how can I grab people by the collar? It is true with a lot of climate science that there are worst-case scenarios that are really damn scary. But if you then say, well, the less worst-case scenarios might be more livable, that we might manage and muddle our way through, then will you get the same attention? Which brings us to strategy again. Do we want to motivate or do we want to stop short of that and inform? Now, I have no problem with advocacy science or advocacy journalism as long as it's fair and complete. So it's hard for me to fault people for saying we got to let people know just what could happen if we don't get on this quickly enough. I think this is a really difficult question. If you tell people that there's no hope and everything is lost, they won't do anything. If you tell people, you know what, I think we can get through this, they probably won't do anything. (laughs) So where is the sweet spot? Because I do see climate scientists saying, we do believe that there's time. That's kind of the message that I hear across the board from people, whether they're suffering depression and anxiety or those who don't feel such burdens. The thrust of, of this hour is about the numbing effect. And you talked to some scientists who said that anxiety had rendered them kind of numb. Indeed. This is the case when knowing too much brought some almost to the point of complete inaction. Dr. Kim Cobb talked about studying basically the death of a major coral reef on election night 2016. She went into a deep depression because she realized there would be no climate change action. And she spent months barely able to get out of bed. And it took couple of months for her to figure out what she needed to do as a scientist. She was continuing to do her scientific work, but by becoming more of an advocate at the same time, attending scientific conferences and urging other scientists to speak out in favor of policy action instead of just presenting data, that got her out of her funk. That gave her a new view of what she should do with her role as basically an informationalist. That's what scientists are. They gather information, they present it to the world. She now knew that she had to go a step further and say, based on the information I'm presenting you, I think we need these actions right away. What about those scientists who see themselves as personally implicated in the climate change story just because they fly or they haven't gone solar on their house, or for whatever reason, that they have carbon footprints. What are the ways they find to go about their lives with what you describe as a kind of cloud of guilt always hanging over them? It's hard to escape. And I think the scientists, some of whom I spoke to, this anxiety that they feel based on the research and based on the fact that they don't see a commensurate response in society at large is somewhat compounded by their own involvement, whether it's driving cars, whether it's cooking with charcoal, whether it's flying, because there's a tremendous amount of emissions from jet planes. 
And so most of them told me that one way they've tried to cope is by becoming greener, flying less, buying Priuses, telecommuting. They all know that that's not the big solutions that are truly needed. But I think it is a psychological mechanism. If everyone did, we certainly would be in a better spot, and they see it that way. What about Sarah Meyer? She's a former senior research associate at the University of Washington's School of Oceanography. And she experienced what she called a profound level of grief on a daily basis because of the scale of the crisis that is coming. I don't have clinical depression. I have anxiety exacerbated by the constant background of doom and gloom in science. I think many listeners would respond to that and not just to the science part. She said it wasn't stopping her from doing her work, but it was an impediment. And it's something that she and others who I've spoke to, you know, live with on a daily basis. She has come up with a coping mechanism that sounds pretty simple. She talks about it. She became a science communicator. She would speak to public groups about what needed to be done. She says that has given her even more purpose in life. We've been talking about a lot of women. Is this just a girl thing? Well, you know, I noticed that to a degree. I mean, there is a a fellow named Peter Kalmus who had tremendous climate grief and talked about basically sobbing on the phone when he was talking to a congressional office. It also could be an old, young type of thing, too, Mm. where a younger generation of scientists are more willing to challenge some of the norms of their community and talk about their own relationship to the Mm -hmm. data, Mm -hmm. their psychological and emotional relationship to the data. There could be different things at at work here. But I do think, as I talk to people in the field, that there's more of this type of discussion going on to deal with the numbness. People, you feel numb, I feel numb too. You know, she feels numb as well. How is she dealing with it? And so I believe this is the beginning of a process, and I'm not sure where it's going to end. Do you feel numb ever? Always. (laughs) I think the media environment, you know, in the last couple of years, particularly in Washington where I am, feels like you're in a blender every day. Everybody's searching for stories that cut through the clutter, they have impact, they also get traffic. But as soon as you do one of those stories... The next day, you feel like Sisyphus starting all over again because we are processing through information and news and stories so quickly. We're on this hamster wheel, and I think that's basically causing a general societal freakout. I think that's the technical term. (laughs) David, thank you so much. My pleasure. David Korn is the Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones. For the past 10 years, Priya Shukla, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of California, Davis, has studied and cared for various shellfish on the West Coast. When she began, she already saw changes in the water that threatened her mollusks. But now present devastation preys on her thoughts and feelings. Recently, in Bodega Bay, where I do my research, there was this huge 
heat wave, and it coincided with some of the best low tides of the summer for these mussels, which are related to the oysters that I study, it was actually pretty devastating. The mussels were essentially cooked because this low tide event coincided with this extreme heat wave Mm -hmm. and killed off so many mussels. And other folks have observed the same phenomenon up and down the California coast. So you're seeing this stuff happening. What's your non-scientific personal reaction been? Talking about it out loud is very challenging. And so I have to treat myself like an objective person with the perspective that is removed from what is happening. But when I am by myself and I am looking at the data or I'm reading the papers, I get overwhelmed and I get tired very quickly. And sometimes I won't even realize it, but my eyes are actually welling up with tears. But you know that the worst case scenario is just that. It's a scenario. I totally appreciate that. Maybe the worst case scenario is not what we will contend with. But in the marine ecology literature, we measure averages a lot. What is the average response to an increase in temperature? What we know is that it only takes one extreme event to cause some kind of devastating event like those muscles. Do you use the kind of intensity of emotion that you feel to inform the presentation of your work? If the audience is technical, then likely not. But when I speak to the public, finding a way to emotionally connect with people about how dire that situation is, is the most useful tool I have. And I think it is incredibly effective. I try not to veer into being a babbling alarmist, but I'm sure some would accuse me of doing that from time to time. (laughs) What is it that you're feeling, though? I veer on the side of grief. Right now, as I'm talking to you, I can feel this compression in my chest because thinking about all the papers that I've read that constantly document these effects is really hard. Recently, I have veered into thinking about oyster diseases, these really small oysters that are millimeters in size. They have these summer mortality events, and you can lose up to 90 to 100 percent of your oysters. When I think about this, it's for the shellfish industry, but if it were any species that people feel more emotionally, to maybe like whales or lions or even us, thinking about what it means to have 90 to 100 percent loss every summer is really hard to wrap my mind around. How do you make yourself feel better? So there are two ways that I make myself feel better. One is I am a contributor for Forbes Science Online, and I have that column. And I have the privilege of being able to take technical literature and try to translate it for lay audience. I also have to remember that I am doing the best that I can. I just flew into D.C. last night, and so the entire flight over, I was thinking about my carbon footprint and what I have been doing this past year to alleviate it, and then how the fact that I am a climate scientist at least must, in some moral calculus, help offset that flight that I took. Do you think the emotion gets in your way or fuels you? Probably a little bit of both. I think anger is a very empowering tool, but it's also incredibly exhausting. But I'm angry because I care, and because I care, I continue to do this work. And I think this work is really important. And when I say work, that's anywhere from making sure that my muscles aren't covered in their own poop all the way to thinking about what am I going to write about for my next 
article to what am I going to talk to my mom about? Your work must have arisen out of a spark of curiosity, a bit of wonder. How do you protect that? How do you steer yourself away from numbness? A long time ago, when I knew I wanted to become some kind of natural scientist, it was a wonder about the natural world that really drove me. And now that spark and that curiosity is not just about the beauty of nature, but in fact about what our planet and what our society needs. There is a lot of monotony in science, but for me that monotony is a lot of meditation. And that meditation brings me some pain when I think about the impacts of climate change and the consequences, but it also means that I can envision optimism. Do you think that the emotion that you feel is productive? Yes. That fire that I have, that fire which sometimes is in fact anger or pain or sadness or anxiety, I can easily put that fire out and replace it with a fire to work towards a solution. When I feel those, those inklings of, of a negative emotion, I immediately take a detour towards something productive to think about how can I quell that emotion by preventing it from ever coming up in the first place. And to do that, I have to do some really hard but important work. Priya, thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Brooke. Priya Shukla is a Ph.D. student at the University of California, Davis. So increased engagement is one cure. Coming up, another. Doing nothing. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash On The Media. That's Indeed.com slash On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. As the prospect of Britain's yet unresolved exit from the European Union looms large, many Brits are experiencing what officials, pundits, and the media have termed Brexit anxiety. Four out of ten people report Brexit has had an impact directly on their mental health. And one in ten of them say it's been a large impact. Britain is suffering from Brexit blues, according to health experts and academics. There are warnings that... In response to the stories about a surge of Brexit-related anxiety, the ailing masses have been advised by mental health professionals and the media to direct their attention away from the whims of politics. Focus instead, they urged, on the aspects of your life you can control, like family, sleep, and exercise. Dan Degerman is a researcher in philosophy at Lancaster University. His research focuses on the connection between the medicalization of negative emotions and political agency. He told us that the whole Brexit anxiety thing was bogus from the get-go. There was actually very little evidence to support these claims about an increase in the number of people seeking mental health care. A lot of these articles referred back to mental health blogs, which were written by therapists. They were really saying that their existing patients wanted to talk more about Brexit, which makes perfect sense, right? Because that was the thing of that day, and it still is, really. And the reported consequences of not following professional advice? You could spiral into a serious mental disorder. 
Dagerman dug up evidence to support the idea that the Brits were having their legitimate feelings of anxiety about the future of their country delegitimized, being advised with goop-like sincerity to search inside themselves for calm. He found one such video on YouTube. The whole video started with this man. He was a Remainer describing how upset he was over Brexit and how he had gotten into these arguments with people. How has this session helped you? It's made me realise that I can't do too much about it and it is really what it is. Mm. And for me to just accept it and let it go rather than scream, shout, kick, holler and be very frustrated. His anxiety wasn't really about the world. It wasn't about Brexit. It was about him. So if the problem is us, no need to take to the streets, right? I asked what his advice would be to sufferers of the Brexit blues. To frame it in kind of a British cliche, my advice to people would be to not keep calm and carry on with their lives, but to really to be emotional about political issues and to find ways of acting on their emotions with other people. So another voice in favor of not walking away. But is that really the answer? Maybe it depends on where you go and for how long. I've just read a new book with what to some may seem an objectionable title, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. It's by artist and writer Jenny O'Dell. She questions the wisdom of staying plugged in. She notes that we've all signed on to a project in which the external conflict that consumes our lives, the very words that define it, have been determined by other people. People seeking nothing more from us, and nothing less, than our attention, our time, the most precious thing we have. But Odell says certain kinds of thoughts require certain kinds of places. We have to walk away to find them and do something that looks like, but really isn't, nothing. I really mean nothing from the point of view of a very narrow sense of what we would consider something productive. Not only does it seem like we're all working more, but even when we don't think we're working, we're producing something like representations of our vacations or constantly checking back on things like Instagram and Twitter, always needing to have something to show for your time. Just the decision not to do those things all the time appears strangely radical. And so doing nothing really means doing something else that's closer to maybe observation or curiosity and doesn't necessarily have results that you can point to at the end of it. What makes your argument different from the one about information overload that has been made ever since the creation of the internet? I really lean pretty hard on metaphors from ecology. Ecology in general, especially my local ecology, not only provides me with some sort of grounding that feels very different from the kind of placelessness of my online experience, but looking at any ecological community is a lesson in how there may be things or entities or individuals, but they're so intricately bound up with other beings and other systems that it almost becomes hard to draw a hard line around anything. I mean, if you think about like the experience of reading a headline, especially a clickbait headline, and having a knee-jerk reaction to it, you think you have a grasp of something and you think you know what the hard outlines are of that thing. When you look at something in an ecological system, you have to acknowledge that everything is influencing other things in real time in a way that is maybe unpredictable or at least kind of hard to pin down. 
that provides a really, really crucial lesson for the importance of context. And context is something that I see being lost very quickly online, where you have like bits of information spreading very quickly out of context. And then that impulse to seek context becomes difficult to cultivate when everything is moving so quickly. And in your book, you really do go beyond, as you say, informational context online to an ecological context. You talked about atmospheric rivers. Yeah, that was a really big moment for me in terms of thinking about wider and wider contexts. I had seen in a newspaper a headline about an atmospheric river that was going to be arriving from the Philippines, and um, I'm half Filipino. I've never been there, but it just kind of struck me that I, I had never thought about where the rain here comes from. And an atmospheric river is basically, it's what it sounds like. It, it looks almost like a river when you look at radar images. So it was this kind of direct, almost like transmission of water from the Philippines to the Bay Area. So I, I collected some of that water in a jar, and I actually still have it on my desk, just as this kind of reminder, right? You know, when you look at clouds, they came from somewhere else, that everything is kind of constantly moving and being influenced. If we spend too much time on the Internet, we become sort of placeless. I mean, obviously, it's such a cliche, people walking down the street looking at their phones, people at dinner looking at their phones, and so on and so on. You took up bird watching, and then you discovered that as you grew to identify the birds, you started to identify the way they sound. Then you knew about the trees. They spent a lot of time in how the impact of the birds on the trees affected other organisms, and this all sounds very touchy-feely. But the fact is, it does have an impact. You're arguing it doesn't just make your life better. It improves the quality of your engagement on the political level. Any place has not only an ecology, but a history. And I have been very humbled by how much I have learned about those two things relatively recently, especially given that I have lived around the Bay Area my entire life. So I think that humility is also something you can learn, right? This acknowledgement that there's always more for you to learn, that you will be surprised that someone will tell you something that you don't know. You might change your mind about something. These are all things that, to me, feel very different than, for instance, having like a personal brand on Twitter where you're kind of not allowed to change your mind and you have this very monolithic and stable personality. Spending time thinking about any kind of context is really helpful for having more complex and nuanced conversations or even thought processes about something that might seem, you know, more cut and dried um, without looking at it more closely. So Charlie Warzel wrote in the New York Times online this week about the women's U.S. soccer team's striking victory over Donald Trump. He described how Trump's ability to hijack platforms and turn unrelated discussions into fights about him has scrambled the brains of his political opponents because the traditional approaches, fact-checking, for instance, require lending some portion of your platform and attention to the hijacker, meeting the president on his own terms. But the women's team refused to do that. The team was occupying what you called a third space, neither submitting to a demand for attention nor blindly refusing it, but just negating the terms of Trump's demand altogether. Yeah, I think that it's a really good example of this kind of phenomenon in which, you know, if you ask someone a question, you're already framing possible answers. 
especially I think of something as asked in an aggressive way. It can sort of bring up this fight or flight response in someone where they're already just thinking about like, okay, what's my answer? Instead of this larger question of like, do I need to answer this question or can I answer a different question? Kind of like, do you prefer chocolate or vanilla? Isn't the weather nice today, is your response. (laughs) (laughs) I started to really understand what you meant by the third space, not answering the question in their terms or answering a different question. When you pulled in Bartleby the Scrivener, which is the title character in Herman Melville's famous short story, to illustrate the third space, the narrator in that story is a comfortable, well-intended Wall Street lawyer in the 19th century who hires a copyist named Bartleby, who performs his duties well enough until he's asked to check his own writing against an original. Bartleby, come here, please. I have some copy to examine. I would prefer not to. Bartleby, did you misunderstand me? I have some copy to check against the original. Come in here and help me. I would prefer not to. From that point on, he continues to give the same answer to pretty much any question. Will you tell me, Bartleby, where you were born? I would prefer not to. Have you any relatives living? Will you tell me anything about yourself? I would prefer not to. Will you do some work? In fact, he stops working. He stops moving. And in frustration, finally the lawyer moves his offices and the next tenants have Bartleby sent to jail, where he apparently prefers not to eat, and he dies. How does Bartleby inform your argument? I prefer not to is just linguistically so interesting because it's not answering the question at all. He's not complying because he's not doing the work. He's also not saying no. The narrator says, I wished that he would just do combat with me on the same plane, get angry or say like, no, I will not do that. But it's it's not even no, I will not do that. It's I prefer not to. I prefer not to what? Answer the question, do the work. The actual story of what happens is very sad, but the way it's written, I mean, I found myself laughing out loud because you have this person who just expects everyone to do everything that he asks. And then in the midst of everyone trying to be very productive, you have this person just saying, I would prefer not to. I will not only not do the thing that you're asking me to, I will not even answer your question. Like, I will just kind of stand over here to the side. Inspiring, but hopefully not too inspiring, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a form of critical refusal. But give me a productive example from real life. Give me the story of the San Francisco general strike of 1934. So, yeah, I wrote about the general strike, which started as a longshoreman strike. Initially, before the longshoremen were unionized, they would show up for work and you might get hired, you might not get hired, you might have a shift that's two hours, you might have a shift that's 30 hours, at the whims of the shipping economy and these gang bosses who were doing the hiring. So there was not a lot of opportunity to kind of reach out and make these you know, networks of support, because if, if you didn't accept those conditions, then someone else would. They were kind of individually pitted against each other. And so there was a law that was passed in uh, 1933 that allowed um, them to unionize in a new way that was actually kind of a genuine union that created this space that was very democratic and racially inclusive. The representatives were actual dock workers, not salaried 
union officials. While these unproductive negotiations were going on, this rank-and-file group was, in a very disciplined and democratic way, uh, making arrangements for this strike. How was this I prefer not to? Because up until this law was passed, some of them were part of company-run unions. And so the negotiations were happening between these, like, salaried union officials and the employers, and it was just kind of this quagmire in relationship to that, I see this rank-and-file organization that was happening as a kind of, I would prefer not to move in that, like, okay, this situation over here is totally unproductive. Like, let's refuse the terms of this question altogether and just stop working. When you describe the longshoremen in that period and in the period just prior, you drew what appears to be the kind of obvious parallel with the gig economy today, where the rules of engagement are pitting one person against another in competition for a job when they ought to be allies. Uh, You suggest that this is perhaps another arena in which many people might prefer not to. Right. But I think I also acknowledge that being able to afford to refuse is a really important variable. And I think it's very telling that the strike happened after that legislation was passed, allowing them to unionize in that way. And then, you know, not that long afterwards, there was more legislation that made it harder for unions to coordinate in a strike. So you become less able to refuse and then the situation kind of continues to get worse. But you think people who can afford to refuse ought to? Yes, that's definitely a responsibility that I feel with The fact that I don't live a life where I'm constantly trying to figure out the math of doing three different jobs and surviving. I would not ask someone in that situation to prefer not to. Um, But I have some time and I have some attention that I can give to that project. There's this tension between what makes us feel better and what makes the world better. And there was a big section of your book. I mean, you've taught art. You're an artist yourself. And you talked about the kinds of art that are so minimal. The non-musical work of John Cage, where you're basically listening to the sounds in the room. The panels of Ellsworth Kelly with the single colors. But if you stare in front of it long enough, it vibrates and becomes more and more fascinating. The sounds in the room where the orchestra is not performing in accordance with Cage's piece enables you to hear sounds more when you leave the hall. Do those things that enable you to engage more fully with the natural sounds and sights of the world make you a better citizen? I think they do. Artists spend a lot of time thinking about attention They spend a lot of time thinking about how to direct a viewer's attention, oftentimes to recreate for the viewer or listener the original experience of discovery and attention that the artist had, where the piece teaches you how to notice more or to notice something different that could potentially change someone's life. My life was changed by that John Cage piece because I realized that I hadn't really properly listened to non-musical sounds for my entire life. After seeing this very strange John Cage performance at the symphony, which utilized things like a blender and shuffling cards and very strange vocalizations, I walked outside and I heard the bus, the cars, footsteps on the sidewalk. Of course, I had heard those things before, but I had not consciously heard them. 
I think the same thing has happened to me with bird watching, where, of course, I've pointed my eyes at these animals before, but I didn't see a goldfinch or a junco. What I'm seeing is actually very different. It suggests to me that there are further things that I could discover if I paid more attention. There will always be more. And I think that that is related to this agency and seeking context. Because if I acknowledge that what I think I see in front of me is not the whole story, then I'm going to have an incentive to seek out more information and also to be more open-minded to things that are different from what I thought I knew. You're arguing for a project of reconfiguring how we take in the world. Your book is called How to Do Nothing, but it's not really about nothing, is it? No. (laughs) It's not actually about nothing. I think nothing is still a very useful word to use in that we associate it with emptiness. And I think emptiness is a really useful figure right now because it implies that kind of openness, seeing without immediately judging, allowing oneself time and space to let things come in rather than being sort of assaulted by things all the time. You acknowledge how difficult it is to walk away, to unplug. But you can't notice things until you do. And it's when you notice things that you care about them. And when you care about them on that visceral level, you're more likely to return to the world and act in a way that is productive on your own terms. Yeah. The example that sometimes I give is the difference between reading a million horribly depressing articles about climate change and in Oakland, getting familiar with the populations of shorebirds that come to Lake Merritt every winter, if they were to decline in some way that was observable, that feels very different. I have a personal and contextual relationship with that loss. And Um, more likely to prompt action? Definitely. It provides some sort of traction, right? It's like this problem expressed on a scale that I can understand. But for those among our listeners who talk about impact, will embracing and responding to the argument in your book, will that make the world better than what they're doing now? I don't think so necessarily. I really consider my book a stepping stone. I think I describe it in the beginning as like a rest stop Mm -hmm. on the way somewhere else. I see it as giving the reader permission to step away long enough to ask higher level questions than you're going to be able to when you're in this endless cycle of anxiety and distraction. I also think that there's a really important role for giving yourself time to mourn the things that are happening. The idea that you would not give yourself any time to process any of that is just sort of ridiculous. If you're trying to have an impact, I don't think that you are able to think as deeply without that space about How should you be organizing your attention and your energies and your time? I see my book as addressing this space before you do something. Jenny, thank you very much. Thank you. Jenny O'Dell is author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Micah Lowinger, Leah Fetter, John Hanrahan, Asta Chattavetti, and Sandra Ellen. 
We had more help from Chloe Nosan, and our show was edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.